There's a story that Henry Ford was on holidays in Ireland in 1915 and he was asked to give some money to a local orphanage. They were just building it while he was there. So Henry Ford, um, a very rich but also generous man, pulled out his checkbook and he wrote out a cheque for £5,000. In 1915, that was a massive amount of money, probably the equivalent of half a million dollars today. The next morning, though, uh, he gets up He goes down for breakfast, he picks up the morning newspaper and the headline of the paper was that Henry Ford had donated not 5,000 but 50,000 pounds to the orphanage. They'd accidentally put an extra zero in the newspaper article. So the director of the orphanage was um, straight up there to Henry Ford, apologised. He said he'd contact the newspaper and fix up the story. Henry Ford said, don't worry about it. He asked for the cheque back, he added in the extra zero. He donated the orphanage £50,000, about $5 million. Now the first donation was generous enough, but in order to save some embarrassment for the newspaper and the orphanage, he gave them ten times as much. That is extravagant generosity. Now today, as we look at 1 Samuel 30 we're going to see the extravagant generosity that God shows us. We're going to see it modelled by King David in his generosity to the people around him, but as we've been seeing in 1 Samuel, when David acts rightly as the Messiah, he's pointing us to what Jesus will be like. And to people who don't deserve it, like you and I, God, through Jesus, he welcomes us into his family. He calls us his brothers, his sisters, his friends, and he showers us with blessings that we don't deserve. So uh, it's a really um, encouraging passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. There's an outline of the talk in your bulletin there. You can see, firstly, we're going to see that David returns to God because he's been in the wilderness a bit um, figuratively. He's not in a good relationship with God at the moment. We're going to see how then God gives David an incredible victory, which you just heard the reading about. And then we're going to see how David shares the spoils of that victory with all the people around him. So firstly, let's see how it is that David returns to the Lord, because we've sort of been waiting for this the last few weeks, haven't we? David has been on the run from Saul, but he's also been on the run from God. Last week in chapter 29, you might remember David was up at Aphek getting ready to fight for the Philistines, for the enemies of God's people. But the Philistine commanders, they realise how stupid that is and they send David home back to Ziklag. That's not his home in Judah, that's his sort of home away from home because he's run away, remember? Now it's taken three days for David and his men to march from Aphek down to Ziklag, we find in the very first verse of this chapter, and when they get back home, something terrible waits for them, something devastating. Verse 1. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters were taken captive. 
David and his men have been marching for three days on their way home. Can you imagine the panic, the fear, as they get near their hometown and they see the smoke rising? And they get closer and they see their houses are burning. And it's quiet. There's no sheep. There's no cattle. There's no children running around. Everything, everyone is gone. Their reaction is described in verse 4. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. They're devastated. They cry and cry till there's nothing left in them. But then, for David's men, their sadness starts to turn to anger. See, David led them up into battle, three-day march up to Aphek, where they were told, go back home, we don't want you. And when they arrive home, everything is gone. And so they start talking about killing David. Verse 6. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. David is absolutely desperate here. His his family's gone and the men are ready to stone him. Now, here's the big difference between King David and King Saul. The big difference is not that uh, they don't make mistakes. The big difference is how they respond when they're desperate. In chapter 28, when Saul was greatly distressed, what did he do? He went to the witch of Endor. When David hits rock bottom, what does he do? He finds his strength in God. And that's the difference between Saul and David. It's not that David never did anything wrong. It's not that David was perfect. That's certainly not the case from the last few weeks. No, the difference is that David eventually turned back to God for help. Saul was proud. He didn't want to hear what God had to say because he didn't like what God had to say. David is broken and he needs God's help. And um, as we read it in a a moment in verse 6, Um, I just want you to notice the very personal way that it is described. Okay, It's not just David making a bargain with God to get him out of a sticky situation. No, after more than a year in the wilderness, David is coming back to the Lord his God. It is very personal. Verse 6. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord, which when it's in the capital letters there in the Bible, that's the personal name for God, Yahweh. David found strength in the Lord, his God. See, David knows God. We've seen a fair way uh, a long time ago that David has been praying to his God and we've seen David writing psalms to his God and then we've... Seen in the last couple of chapters, David wandering away from his God. But here David again finds strength in the Lord, his God. Just on the way through, I wonder if that's the kind of language you would use to speak about God. Is God your God? Is he just some God out there? Or do you know God personally? Would you call him as, as the Lord my God? 
Okay, we're going to think about that perhaps a bit later in the talk. But for now, for David to put his strength in the Lord, his God, this is a massive turning point in 1 Samuel. Because from here on in, David starts relying on God again and seeking God for wisdom and guidance again. We see that in verse 7. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Now, that's familiar. Do you remember in the past few chapters, whenever David wants to seek God's guidance, he goes to the ephod. That is where God guides him. Abiathar brought it to him, verse 8, and David inquired of the Lord. Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, God answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. Now, what hope that last word must have given David? The rescue. God promises David and his men victory in rescuing their families. And as we read on, we already heard it read by Howard, that is exactly what happens. David leads his men down south in pursuit. Um, There's a map there, just so we can follow on a bit, because we're going into some new territory here. They get to this brook called Besor. It's a river crossing. There's a picture of Besor today. Okay, that's not, they didn't have the suspension bridge back in David's day. Uh, There's another picture of it. It's not a particularly bad crossing, but think about it. They've been on foot for three days' walk up to Afek with their battle gear. Three days' walk back down again. They find their houses burnt down. Another day's walk down to Besor. They are exhausted. And for some of the men, even the thought of getting their families back isn't enough to keep them going. Verse 10. 200 men were too exhausted to cross the ravine. But David and 400 men continued the pursuit. So 200 men give up and they wait here at the river, maybe having a bit of a swim and a drink, I don't know. 400 go on. So they cross the river in the hope that they'll be able to find their wives and children, which God has promised. As we read on, they just happen to find an Egyptian out wandering all by himself in the middle of the desert. He is starving hungry. He's had nothing to eat or drink for three days. And David and his men, even though they wouldn't have had a lot of food because their um, town was burnt down, they give him some bread and some water in verse 11. They give him a fig cake and some raisins in verse 12, and that cheers him up a fair bit. It says that he was in good spirits now. And in his response, he is only too happy to let them know what's been happening. And it turns out that he was part of the raiding party that burnt Ziklag. He was one of the slaves of the Amalekite soldiers, verse 13. David asked him, to whom do you belong and where do you come from? He said, I am an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Kerathites and the territory belonging to Judah and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. Now, I don't know about you, but at this point, I'm almost expecting David to just pull out his sword and kill this guy because, I mean, if a few chapters ago David was ready to kill Nabal just because he didn't share a meal with him, what is David going to do with this guy who helped burn his village to the ground? But this is a very different David here. David is trusting in God's promise that they will succeed in the rescue. And that's what happens. The Egyptian leads David right to the Amalekites' camp where David and his men defeat them. And the writer of 1 Samuel goes out of his way at this point to let us know that 
Everyone was rescued. Four times, we're told, nothing was missing. Verse 18, David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing. Young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken, David bought everything back. Okay, we're meant to be reminded, I I think by this repetition, of God's promise back in verse 8. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. That's exactly what happened. It's a happy ending. David has rescued um, all their families. But we're only two-thirds of the way through the chapter. There's still one-third to go, and in many ways this is the most important bit of the chapter. Because we already know that God can use David to rescue people, don't we? I mean, we saw that back with Goliath, so there's nothing new here. But what 1 Samuel 30 does have to teach us about God's Messiah that is new is that in the rest of the chapter we focus on the extravagant generosity of David. And we see it happening in two scenes. The first scene is back at the river crossing. So David and his men, they're now heading back to Ziklag and they get back to the brook where the 200 tired men stopped. Now remember, David... David's men, they're a pretty lousy bunch of blokes, okay? They're all the disgruntled, discontent men who gathered around David with no hope. So it's no surprise that when the 400 men, who are feeling pretty good about themselves and what they've just done, get to the 200 men who were down by the brook and didn't even come into the battle, they don't want to share with them. Well, not all of it. They'll give them a little bit. Verse 22. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. Now, it's worth noting that what they're proposing is actually fair, I think. 200, these 200 men, they're getting their families back. Okay, So they're getting back what belongs to them. They're being treated fairly. And the 400 men who went into battle, they get to share in the extra winnings of the battle, which they earned. Sort of that would be fair. But David has different plans. David doesn't want to do what's fair. David wants to do what is generous. Because he sees that this victory is not his victory. It's not even the victory of the 400 soldiers who went into the battle. This is a victory that God has brought about. And because this is God's victory, everyone gets to share in the rewards. Verse 23. David replied, No, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and handed us over to the forces that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the men who stayed with supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All shall share alike. See, David says it doesn't matter that they didn't come into battle with us. It's not as if we deserve it and they don't. No, none of us deserve this. This is because God has been generous to us and so we will share it with everyone. It's interesting at this point that David calls them brothers in verse 23. David replies, no, my brothers. Saul, remember, saw his fellow Israelites as people to be used and abused. He even killed them if they got in his way. David calls this grumbling, 
discontent bunch, his brothers. That's not where his generosity stops, though. Scene 2, verse 26. When they get back to Ziklag, David is even more generous uh, and not only calls these people in the towns around him brothers, but now he calls them his friends and he sends uh, gifts everywhere. Verse 26. When David arrived in Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends, saying, here is a present for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. Now, who are his friends? Well, we get this list. We'll follow him on the map. He sent it to those who were in Bethel. That is way up there. Ramoth Negev. That's probably there. Jatir. That's there. Those in Aror. Way down there. Uh, Shipmoth. That's over there. Uh, actually, no one really knows how, a clue where that is. It doesn't exist today. It doesn't occur anywhere else in the Bible. I've just randomly put it there. <laughs> Eshtemoah, in there. Rakal, there. Those in the towns of the Jerahamelites, that's way down there below Beersheba. Then the Kenites, that's actually right off the bottom of the map but I'll just put it in there. Those in Hormah, which is somewhere near Ziklag up there. Oh, sorry, that's Boashan there. Atak, which is in there. And Hebron, which is there. Basically, everywhere. And if that's not enough, verse 31, to those in all the other places where David and his men had roamed. These are David's friends. This is who David is sharing his spoils with. Everyone. His generosity is over the top. It's like Henry Ford. It's not just the 400 men who went into battle with him. It's not even the 200 who went halfway. Every Israelite town around him gets to share in the spoils. And like we've seen again and again in the book of 1 Samuel, when David is acting rightly as God's Messiah, it is there to show us what Jesus will be like. So in these actions of David, if the past is anything to go on in the book of 1 Samuel, we should be thinking, is there anything in this chapter that we've read today that points us to Jesus? Well, of course there is, isn't there? This is exactly the kind of king Jesus is. He is a king who shares everything with us. He's a king who gave his life for us on the cross so that we could be forgiven. Jesus dishes out forgiveness all over the place to everyone who asks for it. And then he continues to forgive us day after day. He gives it out again and again. And he's patient with us. He changes us from being bitter, discontent people into people who are joyful and thankful. And this generosity of David in this passage is meant to be pointing forward to the generosity of Jesus, which we will have tasted if we're a follower of Jesus. And as you think back over the passage today, there's some other things I think that jump out too. David calls them his brothers. That is exactly what Jesus calls us in Hebrews 2. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. David calls them his friends. That is exactly what Jesus calls us in John 15. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. 
I don't think those things are a coincidence. Our relationship with Jesus is personal. And just like David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God, when we come to Jesus, our King, our Saviour, our brother, we are his friends. It is personal. That's why Paul can say in Galatians, the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. Jesus gave his life for undeserving, ungrateful me and you. We don't deserve to be called God's children. And yet through Jesus, that's what we are. What a great insight into the incredible, lavish generosity of King Jesus to us. And so if you are someone who has tasted the generosity of Jesus, let's be careful that we don't have that attitude of the 400. You know, the ones who thought they had more right to God's blessing than the other people who hadn't worked as hard as them? That can be a trap, can't it? To think that somehow we deserve more than other people in the church family because, I don't know, we've done more or we're better somehow. You know, I've been part of this church for a long time or I work really hard or I'm part of a small group or I'm a small group leader or I'm an elder or I'm a pastor, you know, I should get some recognition around here. Who cares? None of that stuff earns you any better place in this church family because we are all nothing. We were, we were all God's enemies. None of us deserve to be here. And yet we are all special We are all brothers and sisters and friends in Christ. Every one of us. And that is Jesus doing. So we don't boast. We serve. And we don't worry about what we've got. We help each other. We live as part of a community. We treat each other as brothers and sisters and friends. We share the gospel with each other and we share our lives with each other because that's how Jesus has treated us. But it might be here that you're here this morning and that is not you yet. You don't know God personally. Some of you perhaps are still looking into what it means to follow Jesus. I hope you've seen today that God is a generous God and he is willing to forgive anyone. Even you. But it's also a relationship that needs to be a personal thing. It's not just something that happens to you sort of automatically when you come through church. You know, you come through turnstile, chink. No. David here returned to the Lord, his God. Do you know the Lord as your God? Have you personally returned to God? Have you ever directly spoken to God and said, God, I'm sorry? Have you personally done business with God where you have asked him to forgive you? 
If you never have, here's a prayer that I would love you to pray. I'm not going to read it out now. It's not a magic prayer. But that's the kind of prayer that expresses that you want to return to the Lord and treat him as God again. I will read it, actually, because you might not be able to read it there. It says, God, I am desperate. I'm in need of your forgiveness. I don't deserve it. Please forgive me. Thank you that Jesus died on the cross in my place. I want you to be my God. Please change me that I can live with Jesus as my king. Now, look, that's just the sentiment. That's the kind of thing that you would pray to God to let him know that you want him to forgive you. I'm going to leave that on the overhead as the singers come out. Maybe you'd like to pray that prayer quietly now in your own mind as you read it. It's also on the bottom of your outline. Maybe you'd like to think about it. And this afternoon, maybe that's a prayer that you would like to pray to God sometime today. But what a great thing that would be to find strength and forgiveness in the Lord, your God.